Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Design is Dead podcast. I am your host, Eldridge, guiding you through conversations on the topic of design, specifically human-centered design, and the world of product service business design strategy. We can throw a whole lot of other design types into that that we will like to include in this podcast in the future. In general, we use our time here to talk about trends in the design community, how design integrates into formal business processes for both large and small organizations, and frankly, how it doesn't, and where design has both helped bring a new perspective to the business of building products and services, and where it has come up short. In this episode, we'll be looking specifically at design in the context of healthcare, uh, a broad and, and deeply complicated topic we're going to do our best to unpack here. And to wit... We are lucky enough to have the always engaging Pete Wendell, co-founder of the Difference Collaborative, and all-around swell fella who has quite an exhaustive collection of books sitting behind him on this Zoom. Welcome, Pete. Hi, Eldridge. Thanks for having me on. We are a new for nonprofit organization that's focused at the intersection of employers and employees who are struggling to balance work and personal family caregiving. We've seen increased rates of burnout mental health, lost productivity, that is totally preventable. And in fact, maybe an opportunity for innovation and leadership if we were to look at this space of caregiving in the workplace in a different lens. We believe we can help employers and employees together create new behaviorally driven approaches for programs and policies and procedures so that employees can care, work, and thrive better together. As we get into it, um, part of the benefit about being a host versus being a guest is I can kind of dictate the schedule. And unfortunately, you're going to have to uh, uh, endure a little section that I'm, I'm now trying. Eldridge got some mail this week. So interestingly enough, uh, I had a pretty good amount of people actually listen to this podcast. I was fairly surprised by how many people uh, actually took the time to download it, listen to it, and a couple of people even sent me emails and comments about it, which I thought nice. was funny. Yeah, it was great. I got one that was very uh, aggressive, is the term that I'll use, around design not being dead and basically about me not knowing what I'm talking about. And while the latter part may be true, um, I am going to frame that a little bit in the context, much as my response to this individual about why we say design is dead, right? Because the origins of this, and you've heard me say this offline, Pete, is the, the notion that design itself is ever-changing and ever-present. And we're making the comparison between the monarchy, right. right? And the old, the king is dead or the queen is dead, where the individual has passed on, the title remains. And I think it's the same thing for design. Like design is constantly shedding off excess layers that frankly don't work. You know, they don't align to what the kind of modern era is or what businesses need or what humans need. And some of those layers are shed and a new entity rises in its place. It is still design. It's just different. Right. So I, I thought it was important to kind of frame that out. Yeah. Maybe one observation for that, if I can interject with Please. with the mail to you um, and being the armchair quarterback that I am, um, it, it seems like this isn't that much different than all other kinds of initiatives or schools of thought or whatnot. I mean, business has gone through layers of how they're going to do things. Science has gone through layers of how they, they do things. Design is doing the same thing 
they may actually be just doing it faster. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like, oh, we we don't have an established dogma yet. And so they're not reinventing themselves because they don't know what they talk about. Um, that may not necessarily be the case because there's design is finding ways to get stuff done in a lot of, in a lot of capacities and it evolves um, in, I think, different contexts because even from a language standpoint, everybody's designing, even whether or not they think they are. <laughs> and oh. so it's it's a little tough to frame up and understand and see the evolution happen when everybody's kind of part of it at the same time. And so it's, uh, I, I think you're onto something when in this frame of design is dead, design is always in this continual process of renewal. Um, it is because it, it has to be, um, otherwise it simply won't, won't exist. Well, and it's a notion for me of design as a verb and not necessarily as a noun, right? And I yeah. think that that's where some of the pushback was. And I would actually challenge anybody who thinks is design as, as a noun that, you know, designers are the only people who can design, right? Again, not true. Um, yep. Other people go through processes that are rigorous based on research, based on iteration and evaluation and measurement, and based on, you know, just trying things, failing and, and building back on top of them, right? Those are design processes for the most part. And they don't necessarily have to be practiced by people who are quote unquote designers. And so that's why I felt it was important to kind of bring it up. And I think it ties into one of the other pieces that I got about UX design being dead. So You'll go through this. We went through it last week. There's a section at the end where we call Dead or Alive, where we'll talk about where we think certain things are in the design community. And when we talked about UX design and dead, I think that the general thought process for both myself and the previous guest, Nathan, were that design that UX design is dead. And I'll talk a little bit about why, right? Because when I talk about UX design, right, I think first of all, the term is terrible. You know, right. user experience human experience is a broader and more appropriate term, right? So I'm already telling you, I don't like the term UX. I think it had its moment. I think that moment is gone. I think a lot of the things that have been buckled into UX are not necessarily purely design-oriented activities anymore. And I think that part of that is is what's happened, I think, in the industry, right? Because I do think that the industry, and you know, you, you work corporate, you understand this, We've seen like this consistent consolidation of design and the attributes of different designers with different skill sets and different expertise into one bowl, right? We've just said that, you know, call it what they called ninjas or unicorns or any of those things before, but now they've lumped a lot of UX into what they call product designers, which is a term that I hate, where you're expected to do both visual design, you're supposed to do IA, you're supposed to do UX, you're supposed to do UI, you're supposed to do all of these things, right? And they're calling that practice. And I think that that ultimately deludes it because you have a bunch of people who are okay at a lot of things, but not particularly good at anything. And I don't think that really helps the field. And I think that from a UX perspective in a corporate context, again, it's kind of a weird challenge of businesses because this was, I think, in the last shop, one of the things that I, I saw most frustratingly so was the fact that you're either not willing from a cost perspective to invest in a lot of the upfront UX practices. So not focused on research, not focused on experimentation and iteration. It's just get the thing done and get it in market. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're also risk averse. They don't want to get something that's untested into market because all of their own measurement criteria are built around what their app store rating is or what their NPS right. is or a couple of limited things. So they don't want to put the time and investment into actually making sure that everything is right 
in air quotes, as much as it can be before they push it into production, but they're also too afraid to push it into production and learn iteratively as you go. So it's like, you're kind of screwed. So to a certain extent, like UX design being dead, it's dead, but it's been like a murder suicide. We've done things to make UX not necessarily a great thing. And then companies have done things to not make it a great thing, which is why we kind of put it in that category. Agree. Agree. You know, I think murder-suicide might have something to do with it, but I do think that there's situational forces that are also accelerating things to this, too. I I would love to see a little bit about the data for other core design, especially in enterprise, roles and what kinds of expectations there are there for evolving their their capabilities. So are they consolidating expertise or are they um, getting more specialized? Um, in what way are, are these other fields uh, making pro- progress? From the standpoint of, say, the past five years, I think from in the U.S. and with a notion of capitalism as it is, and with the notion of creating lots of shareholder value really quickly, and finally the notion of you know looking at the timeline of S and P five hundred companies length of existence shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. There's a lot of pressure that organizations have put on themselves to just deliver growth for the sake of growth and to deliver constant returns and and really to reframe what the purpose of creating value is and how that has a trickle-down effect for squeezing results into something that's much more rapid and quick uh, AKA agile um, impacts that that a company can sign up on. So ultimately, some of these effects of hey, we need a designer that can do anything. We 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 need a they they need to do all the research too. Some of that doesn't surprise me because of mm-hmm. just the need for speed and speed above all else um, being the name of the game. And that doesn't build to sustainable solutions to the complexity of the kind of problems we have now. And that's why I see in healthcare, I'll just cap it off with this. In healthcare, you see so many groups that have started out with really a tech mindset. We can solve this through a tech standpoint and suddenly a year and a half or two years into it, they're like, oh, actually we're in the service business now. This isn't a tech problem anymore. We need to go about this in a totally different way. And so healthcare is kind of this reality field that they're entering into and whether somebody says through design, we shall change this through tech. We shall change this through fill in the blank with whatever siloed or silver bullet tool can change this. They're finding that's not the way. So I, I do think that there are some interesting forces at play and and we're at this, hopefully a moment of potential change to really reframe how companies are thinking about creating value and what does it mean in terms of being a designer going forward? Because, yeah, you you can't wear all hats and still have a, a meaningful outlook on what kind of um, person you want to be able to be. And I, and I think one of the things that you just said there that it, it came up the last episode, it will continue to come up in future episodes. Really, what is the notion of value, right? Yeah. And what are you creating from a value perspective? And if value yeah. is only profitability 
right? If that's the only measure that you have for profitability, then you have a very narrow definition of value. And even if you do, right, say from an organizational perspective that that is your only definition of value is that it's linked inextricably to profitability of the organization. That's fine. You can do that. Whatever you want to do, right? Totally allowed to do from an organizational perspective. For me, I think it needs to be more than that. But if a company wants to do that, that's fine. You can use any of these approaches, right? You can definitely use something that's a lot more upfront, laborious. It takes its time. It does its research. It tries to create more degrees of certainty or understanding about a problem before it rolls a product or service into market, right? You can do that. You can also do it where it's very lean or agile, where you get something to market very quickly, and then you iterate and build off of it, right? Depends on the industry, depending on what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish. However, there are rules for both of those. Like how you're investing in one is different than how you're investing in the other. And I see a lot of times where they don't want to invest in either of them, right? Because especially the former we talked about, it's obviously there's more parties involved. There's more costs associated with it. It's a longer time before you reap the benefits of whatever you've been doing, right? And shareholders get antsy, CEOs get antsy, all of those things in modern capitalism start to drive people crazy. And so they want to go faster. Well, you can go faster, but what are your KPIs? What's your measurement strategy? What are your analytics? What are your metrics? How are you assessing how it's performing in market? What are you looking at from a benchmark perspective? How are you knowing what needs to iterate and what doesn't? How are you structuring your engineering organization and your product and your design organizations to be able to work nimbly? Because you have to do those things if you want to take that approach. And I feel like a lot of people say they want to go fast, but then they don't want to invest. And I think this was, again, an issue from one of the previous shops. They wanted to go fast and they wanted to operate on that speed, but they didn't want to do any of those things. Well, it's like you, you can't because you don't know how you're going to iterate. You don't know what the problems are. You don't know what's working and what's not working. So you can't really iterate rapidly in that sort of environment. And I feel like that's where things have gone kind of wonky and crazy in late stage, early 21st century capitalism. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about, if I could, one of the Please. things that you mentioned there is about measurement and how you consider measurement and what it happens with a team. Um, there, there's a lot that's, that's put out in teams in terms of creating um, KPIs, um, looking at how people are going to be measuring success, but most organizations aren't that good at it. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, okay. they're really kind of poor at metrics that go beyond something that goes to a direct dollar. And we know for a fact, based on a crap ton of psychological research, that people's behavior matches the goal of the metric, not necessarily the intent of that metric. Yep. And so that's where, unless there's an intentional design, I'll use the D word, of those metrics and how we consider the behavioral incentives folded into it so that we aren't resulting in more of people just trying to meet those metrics versus trying to do something that the metric was there to address in the first place. Yep. That's where we often end up with uh, perspectives that uh, are, are limiting, that we, we hit all of our numbers, but yet Something wasn't successful yet. It didn't scale in different places yet. People didn't didn't or wouldn't or couldn't engage with something, um, and so those are not necessarily the things that get talked about as much 
at the end of the day. And those those factors start getting into human behavior and human mindsets and cultural mindsets yep. um, that connect to those those measures and metrics. So I just wanted to call that out out for a minute as that is an activity of, of design and, and understanding people that's just as necessary as designing any process or output. I, I know 100%. I mean, I think that if you're not co-designing those measurements as you're designing the solution, you're, you're done, right? Because you always have to be thinking about not only is this going to work, how are we going to know that it's effective? You know, because if you're not thinking of those things as you're going through the process and you try and tack them on later, or if you try and create them out of hand in the beginning without really understanding the problems you're trying to solve, it's just a, a definition for or a setup for failure. Right. And just to build on that, a lot of the things that we're creating are a lot more complex than what we're doing, say, 5, 10, <laughs> 15 years ago. True. Here's the new widget. No, here's the new thing that has five different divisions that support it here, three different pieces to, to support it on multiple touch points, and then other people for customer service and ramp up over time. I mean, you know, it's it's no wonder that some of these dark patterns have come out there. Is it's they're they're faster and they make money off of things that actually are designed poorer. Um, mm-hmm. how do you think about framing not only the the metrics to engage people, but the metrics to build a, a better case for design and business models that actually prove more sustainable but maybe less profitable um in the in the long in less profitable in the short term but better more sustainable in the long run that's a that's, there's a there's some tricky things that are that are happening there well basically we could distill like every conversation that this podcast will ever host down to long versus short right, right? what are you trying to do for the overall sustainability of the organization or you just in it to make a quick buck, right? And honestly, most of it leans towards making the quick buck in the short term. I think they want both, right? I think everybody wants both. They want to make a lot of money now, and they want to make a lot of money in the future. Great. Those are different things. you know. So what are you doing to accomplish both of those goals instead of just hoping that you can do one thing that will achieve both of those? Because that's just kind of ridiculous. All right, I'm going to segue us a little bit okay. in, into another of our favorite sections in the nascent podcast. This is called the lowdown. So we've got a couple of topics for the lowdown. One, looking at the rise of telemedicine, mm-hmm. um, which has been huge over the course of the past year. I don't know why. Did something happen in 2020? <laughs> I don't, I, I can't recall. Um, but I think the number that I saw that was really important to me was, growth in demand for telemedicine platforms during the pandemic. And also saw that 30% of all outpatient visits from January 2020 to June 2020 were telemedicine. Yes. Crazy. Yeah, that's that's only going to accelerate, I think, in, in, in a lot of fields that we see, especially after effects of COVID-19, AKA the thing that happened in 2020, um, for all the ripple effects that COVID is is having from for this generation, I guess I'd say. So, okay, we're addressing COVID now, we've got vaccines that are coming now, but yet we've got still all the ripple effects that are coming in for things like mental health mm-hmm. that, um, 
people responding to these ongoing effects that still caring for people who have have had um, impacts from this, from the isolation and lack of socialization that's out there. It's the rates of mental health needs have skyrocketed. The rates of suicide, the rates of drug abuse, all these aspects that tie back to a lot of the things that COVID brought with it um, are, are now coming to roost. And so the needs to find avenues for people to address the access and to address and be able to provide meaningful services, telehealth is right there. And it has to scale and continue to um, address these things. It's um, it's a tale of multiple cities that are happening from all, all the COVID events because telehealth brings a lot of certainly remote work into the fray that has never happened before for a lot of organizations. And, you know, coming at, the, at this from the lens of... <clears throat> organizational mindsets and being able to do this. This was new for a lot of a lot of yep. folks from education to healthcare to business to everywhere. Everybody was trying to figure this out. And you see some of these comments, and I'm this is kind of a broader comment, but that groups like Twitter or some divisions of Google were saying, you know, we might not ever have people come back into the office. These might be permanent yeah. things. It might be just the new shiny world of, that's more positive. The thing that people aren't necessarily addressing in, in this and telehealth is part of this too, because it's part of the rest of the, the world of business and health is while we have more access to people on screens, we still don't necessarily have addressed all the cultural and political baggage that goes into people and their behavior and politics and systems that go into it. So it's, it's a bit of this little paradox. While I see Eldridge on the screen here, um, is we're working in the same organization, we don't have any further context. In fact, we have less context context, and contact to talk about those things that might have been previously stigmatized. There's, no, there's, there's nothing there to help provide those kind of avenues for safe discourse, for engaging in things that are controversial, for feeling like someone might be at risk to reveal a mental health problem, for yep. instance, or to address that um, they might not be promoted if they reveal that they're a caregiver now. And so, yeah, you're, you're, you're online 24 seven and telehealth provides the access, but the baggage to that stuff, whether you're a nurse, you're a physician, you're a designer, you're a business person, nobody's addressing that part of it right now. And that's, that's a key piece of understanding. How do we, how do we make these remote things workable? Um, that, 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 that baggage of stigma, those other kind of social barriers, um, or mind, cult, mindset barriers are, are still ever present. It goes back to what you were talking about, about looking at this a little bit more broadly and casting your gaze around the, the system that telemedicine is a part of. Because, first of all, look at broadband requirements, right? right. The fact that you know FCC requirements for broadband are pitiful. It's something like yep. 25 megabits downstream, 3 megs up, right? So we're not requiring a lot of, of speed coming out of these things. But also, when you look at how, who has available speeds at that, you've got about 85% of the country that does. I mean, you've got 15% of the country that doesn't. And this is mostly marginalized populations. This is reservations. Absolutely. This is extreme rural communities that are you know, almost always on the edge of poverty or living below the poverty line. And 
conveniently, uh, those communities have also seen a dramatic decrease in the number of rural health services available because you've seen right. in the past decade, 10% of total rural hospitals and healthcare clinics have been shuttered by big conglomerates of healthcare systems. So now what are we doing, right? Are we saying that there's an upside, there, there's an upside and a downside, right? I think the upside is that now you're saying that for some of these populations, they will be able to get telemedicine. Their hospital has closed. They should be able to get telemedicine. Well, you can't do it if you don't have broadband, right? You're not going to have access to it if you don't have those tools. So now you're not going to have a rural healthcare clinic and you don't really have available bandwidth to be able to participate in it. So it's another group that is just getting completely left out in the cold, right? And as organizations, as they want to do, see telemedicine as a cost-saving enterprise, going back to, again, value, profitability, all those things, as they see it as a cost-cutting exercise, is that just going to drive that digital divide even further and just leave a larger amount of people out in the cold? I don't know, but it concerns me. I think it could. I I think we need to really expand the notion of telemedicine to be more inclusive, both from a technology and a a person-centered standpoint. And so, for instance, a lot of the telemedicine appointments, we're thinking of face-to-face video conferences. Mm -hmm. And there's, to your point, there's so many reasons that that doesn't work from a um, tech access and bandwidth standpoint in a lot of at-risk communities. That also doesn't work, however, for a lot of people that are struggling with mental health issues that uh, are anxious about showing their face or connecting with a male or female and feeling like they're being judged, for instance, or so there, even if you can access, it doesn't necessarily mean you could, or you should, or you Um, want to. Right. And so as we think about access, think about synchronous and asynchronous connections, thinking about text and SMS and AI chatbots and voice as much as a traditional one-on-one real time right now, mental health or uh, 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 health conversation with the with the screen and a person's face and there's another good takeaway there right i think it's the fact that it's not seeing the technology as the end-all be-all you know and i think that that's one of the things from the, the growth of telemedicine right it's the fact that it's still very much that moonshot perspective of technology yes. right because yes. vcs are latching onto it to try and fund startups that are doing this right and it still is a garbage in garbage out you may have a great platform that enables you to do telemedicine and it does open access and it does provide opportunity for a lot of people to connect with a healthcare professional that they may not be able to connect to regularly how are you using that time right yeah, yeah. To your point on this is this can't be a replacement solution. It has to be an augmented one yes. that that works within the scheme of integrated services. Really, a connected ecosystem. And so, because kind of going back to the mental health example here, because we see such a wave of people uh, and and that the need overwhelming the or the demand overwhelming the 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 supply of possible ways which we've addressed this in the past. Um, yes, we have to meet people where they're at, but that doesn't mean it's just a faster path to a PhD or MD level resource. Yeah. It's a faster path to a community of health. It's a faster path to a licensed clinical social worker. It's a faster path to a nurse. Maybe it's a faster path to your school counselor or work counselor. It's a faster path to a whole range of the right leveled 
kinds of resources that are available for you that fit your situation. So it's really about finding and fitting and helping you move forward through these touch points that can connect in meaningful ways with your data and transparently um, and helping people uh, get the right amount of help. Because at, at the end of the day, we aren't, we aren't going to throw more doctors or more psychiatrists or yeah. more whatever fill in the specialty to address this. It has to be done through tech. That is the, the medium in which we can meet people where they're at. The tricky thing to this, of course, is how do we do this in a way that provides the kind of uh, safety and autonomy and um, uh, responsibility with people's data to be able to do that in a way that's equitable, that's accessible, and that's 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 helpful for people. And so underneath the scenes, the access to that point of care is one thing. Um, what we do with all, all that information and how that has ripple effects over time is a whole other conversation. So this is a good segue into the second topic we want to discuss in the current trends. Um, the introduction of behavioral economics right. into health outcomes. Talking about AI, talking about nudge theory, talking about ways to promote healthier lifestyles or, or better health outcomes right. for people using that level of technology, right? And I think that you know there, there are cases out there where it's been effective, right? So right. there are cases when you look at management of diabetes and how people are helping people who are type 1 and type 2 diabetics manage their health more effectively through a lot of different monitoring services that are provided in order to help people stay on top of the regimens and make sure that they're doing the things they need to do structurally. You've seen this from an AI perspective uh, and, and adherence from a, a medication perspective, from a therapy perspective. How yeah. are you helping people adhere? How are you starting to recognize where people are falling off the path or not? That's where the AI comes in. Are they doing well? Are they starting to deviate? When is an intervention necessary to try to bring them back? You're starting to see that. But again, to your point, one, what is the data? How are you getting that data? Right. Two, how are you clear on what the outcomes are that you're trying to get for those patients? And are those outcomes appropriately customized to the individual? Because you could say with everybody, like anybody who's on some level of therapy for something, right? So that right. if you have any type of medications that you're taking regularly to either, you know, keep your blood pressure low, to, you know, keep your diabetes in check, any of these things that you're doing, right? That is probably the end outcome at a, at a high level, right? But it's also not accounting for the uniqueness of each individual's pathway to get to that outcome, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about outcomes for a second here. Outcomes that really help people and outcomes that that are a part of what the system currently exists as mm. to the out the for what insurance will pay for and 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 yes. what our um society powers that be that say this is the appropriate thing to do. And that's exactly the point. I think that's exactly the point, right? What are we modeling that outcome? Is it always about the best possible care outcome for the patient? Which right. I argue even within that, obviously, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of subdivisions about what is, quote unquote, good for an individual patient, right? But at least you can try and find some objective measurement of a positive outcome when you're talking about adherence and some of those other areas, right? Right. So ad adherence, that's not really an outcome. 
that, that's just a that's just a step in the direction. And I'm I'm glad you said the word adherence because there's so much being built into that for that being framed as an outcome. Mm-hmm. If I can just get them to be adherent to taking their pill, if I can just get them to check that box and we will prove our algorithm works if if they are adherent with their uh, um, pills, then then things will be better. Where at the end of the day, being adherent to taking meds at the at the best just gets you taking more meds. That doesn't necessarily mean that person is better or sure. that they're engaged in their own health or the health of people that they're trying to care for. And so those require a multiple levels of understanding about what people's situational, environmental, social, cognitive, economic, transportation, exactly. other kinds of things there that 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 are more relevant. And so we see some of these things in healthcare starting to evolve a little bit. The business models aren't there yet, but one example in mental health is the prevalence of still the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, or DSM, showing the best way that we can diagnose mental health is a symptoms-based manual Hmm. that Eldridge could present symptoms A, B, and C for depression, and Pete could present symptoms A, B, and C for depression. Therefore, these have causal factors of X that are, or have factors of X, and you get the same pill. In, In reality, we can have totally different causes. And by judging only based on those symptoms, there's whole different pathways, multidimensional pathways that can be considered. So the National Institute of Health is actually pushing a research domain criteria that that's looking at multiple levels of definition for how we might be able to diagnose and design a better way forward to, to really address those existing problems. So that means access to food, housing, transportation. That means, do you have a babysitter? That means, do you have these other pieces in there that that are cognitive, emotional, social, genetic? And then we're at the point where we can really address the needs for people where they stand. And that then we're at a point where we can apply technology and design and connected services because we understand them in their context. And that's those are spaces that people are starting to see success with. But it's tough to sell some of these pieces from a systems level change that's yeah. required. Then it is, well, let's just turn on the telehealth prompter and they'll be getting something, won't they? Well, I think that what's funny about that to me is that really directly ties into what you were talking about earlier. What are you measuring? You know, mm-hmm. one, what is this outcome? Right, you know, at, at a nebulous level that you're looking to, to target, but also how you're measuring it. Because if you think about that sort of complexity, right, when yep. you're looking at all of the different things that are able to measure, and you're right, people can't eyeball these things because they're very complex and they're hard right. to eyeball these behaviors when you're seeing them at point, very microscopic points in time, right? I think that yep. one of the things that we picked on last week was ethnography and where ethnography has started to fail in design. It doesn't because it's not ethnography, right? And it's taking very complex issues. I've worked on caregiving as well, working to very complex issues, and you're trying to distill it to 
very limited spheres of research from a timing perspective, from a cost perspective, from an access perspective, you've limited it to these very few things. It does not tell you the story, right? Because you cannot absorb enough information, particularly in, in a topic like that, when you're talking about caregiving, you cannot absorb it in an interview, or even if you're watching them for a week, you can't, that, that story is broad, right? There is tons of stuff that you have to gather to gain meaningful insight into it. But we have allowed, the corporatization has allowed us to shrink our lenses into something that is more palpable from a cost perspective and a cost benefit perspective. Yeah. And so we're missing yeah. that stuff. And so, you know, and a lot of times they don't want to hear it, right? You know, you need to put the thought into all of the things that you need to measure in an, in an experience like that, in a design like that, to be able to determine what is going on with people. And if you're not willing to, A, put in the effort to capture all of those data points, B, create a framework to ingest and analyze those data points, and then being able to take that data and make meaningful inferences out of it, then it just becomes another flashy exercise where we put a lot yeah. of tech in a place and we're seeing what happens. But you have to do all this other stuff with that to make it successful. Yeah, I, I think... Some some of this is that moonshot mindset and the hubris that we have around complexity and control is that, well, you know, why is Haven dead now with Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan? Well, why, why wouldn't that be the, the moonshot? And they shut it down. Yep. This level of complexity, the problems we're speaking about now, can't be solved with any single large organization, no matter how well-resourced and how well-funded. This has to be a partnership, a collaboration of sorts with people across the system that connect to create shared values in transparent and controllable ways for the emergent properties that are there that they can't predict and they can't dictate how people will control. That's a whole level of design that we're just getting our heads around right now that really isn't part of what design has been but really needs to be um, going forward with with acknowledging the complexity of the kinds of problems we're looking at doing and not presupposing more control about all these things is, is A, possible, or B, better. Some of these aspects of uh, control mean we need to intentionally um, think about how we provide feedback or cognitive control over our services and connected products in a way that we don't just fit it like we do our behavioral incentives to the needs of a market or the yep. needs of uh, other forces that are there. Otherwise, it's it's just this cycle of repeated progression and regression that that will continue to happen over time. I I my kind of hope from a design standpoint is moving kind of more towards well dick buchanan's model of design going from things to interactions to systems we really designers role that they can create the most value at is really having a seat in the center to serve as a linchpin to coordinate the efforts across these different diverse mindsets Mm -hmm. and to help people understand again making visible those things that wouldn't be as tangible, whether you might call that service design or systems design these days, and help people plan their roles and scenarios with these data models, with these service models, with these new workflows, 
in a way that really connects across groups that aren't necessarily able to bridge right now. That's that's where I guess I see some of the future of design coming. It's it's not designing more things. It's not doing more UX. Maybe it's even beyond service design, but it's really acknowledging the complexity and the emergent properties of these organizations and people that need to come together in ways that create unique value. And this is really the heart of, I think, the overarching big topic for today's episode is can design be successful in a healthcare environment? I'm going to preface that a little bit with a lot of things you were talking about, right? Because, you know, full disclosure, I hate working in healthcare. Um, Not because I don't think that the work is valuable, not because I don't think that there's things that need to be done. I have not, in my experiences, been able to actually do it. And I think that part of the issue is the fact that you're you're right. It's a moonshot, but it's also an organizational moonshot because so many people want to figure it out on their own. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they want to patent it. And they want to have the IP for it and they want to be able to own it or they see it as a market opportunity. And this was one of the things from a client a little while ago, right? It's the fact that they look at an area and say, hey, that's a trillion dollar industry. Fuck, I need to get part of that, right? Mm -hmm. One, should you? And two, why are you looking at it like that, right? You're only looking at it as a profit center and not necessarily something or don't really appreciate the gravity of being involved in healthcare where there are really important outcomes to consider about the quality of life for humans, right? Yes. But they don't really, a lot of them don't care. They just want to have the thing they can put in market to drive growth for the organization. And to your point, that's not going to work. It's never going to work. It has to be, and I know that you're very passionate about this, and I'm sure we'll we'll position to this. It has to be those private-public partnerships that are enabling the connection of dots across all of these different areas, right? Because nobody can solve it on their own. It has to be a connection. But when you get to some of those companies who are investing in it, and that's Apple to a certain extent with the stuff that they're doing, that's other organizations are involved with this, and then health insurance companies have their own priorities. Is it possible? I mean, and I agree, design is in a perfect position to be a facilitator between all that. I really think that's what design's role is in general, is to be a facilitator. Can it (laughs) effectively be one in the context of the current environment. Yeah, I um I think that's 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 the evolving role for what design leadership needs to take on these days is to have an intelligent set of skills to to not only facilitate but to translate, persuade and motivate different mindsets, different ways of seeing a future. Uh, I'll give you an example of this with with the, the with the difference collaborative we're focused on the problem of caregiving and the fact that over 70% of all full-time employees are impacted in some way in their life with caregiving right now. Yep. Harvard Business Review, the caring company just came out with this data and the, the effects are kind of mind-boggling. Um, 40 to 70% of caregivers come down with mental health issues themselves because you know, we're, we're thinking about these acute and um, chronic patients, but the caregivers are, are suffering along with them. And the growth of our society is we're going to have more people um, over the age of 65 uh, by, the, by 2030 than we ever have had on this planet. Mm-hmm. And the amount of caregivers care, and caregiving that's going to be taking place is phenomenal. It, it yep. has, it's unprecedented. And so as we, we think about 
caregiving that leads to mental health, that leads to burnout, that leads to other things, the mindsets of a lot of organizations, especially I'm, I'm speaking of employers, because in the U.S. we are employee-based health systems. That's a whole other conversation um, that are acknowledging, yeah, we have burnout and we're going to give everybody a gym memberships and yoga mats and some essential oils. Done. All Everything's right. done. That's yeah. right. Don't, we're going to have yoga classes inside the building and everybody will be fine, right? Yeah. Or, you know, it's a cost center. You know, we're burning yeah. money to support these people. We can't even imagine a world where caregiving is planned for. And yet, my God, if you have death taxes and babies and people being born and people getting married and divorced, you sure as hell is going to have caregiving. Either you're going to be a caregiver or you will be affected by a caregiver, just as much as those other truths. And so as we're able to start seeing the acknowledgement that, oh, this is affecting people, we can predict it if we know their situation, there's actually an opportunity to do something here. And the bright spot to some of this is kind of like shifting from a PTSD mindset, post-traumatic stress mindset, to a post-traumatic growth one. The organizations that are taking advantage of really embracing the idea of the people who started with us, they weren't maybe they weren't caregivers when they got here and then they became one. And they for those few that were able to get through it, they become the best managers. They become the best leaders. They become the people who are creating more IP than anybody else. They become the stuff, the people who GSD more than anybody else. And so now we're hearing things over what can we do to address this issue, not just to solve the problem and to stop the burning of so many healthcare resources, but what do we do to think about this as an opportunity for innovation from a cultural mindset, from a leadership mindset, down to the special level of middle managers who, what do we do? And, I, and I'm not speaking fiction here, I should add. I'll give you an example. Accenture. In the UK, had one their leader of all Accenture employees in the UK, and I can't speak to if this is um, spread to other divisions in Europe, but at least it, it, for 8,000 employees, Accenture in the UK, they had a leader who had uh, a family member with mental health issues, serious problems, and that leader said, I'm not, I can't be alone with this stuff. Let's, let's figure out if other people are, are, are dealing with this too. And so they surveyed folks about this stuff and they, they put the caveat in the survey. I'm the CEO of this division. Nobody's going to get fired. Nobody's going to get demoted. Nobody's going to be at risk for any, any programs here. We're, we're going to build a system that's going to help you. I just need your honesty. Who's being affected by this? What do you suppose the rate of the, the rate, the published rate, I should say, of mental health in the workplace in the U.S. and in, in general, I guess, in the U.S. is one in four people are affected by mental health. Sounds about right. Yeah. When they did this survey with those employees, with that caveat, with the CEO support, and they understood they're not at risk anymore for being vulnerable and that there was going to be something that they could take part in that's bigger than themselves what they found it the, the rate was 90 percent of wow. people were affected by mental health issues for themselves their families or someone that they knew close to it doesn't surprise but, me so I, there's an interesting thing there i think that 
one is going when you talk about caregiving, the number that are going to be available by, by 2030. I think what's also interesting in that is the average age of a caregiver. Yes. Because let's face it, people are living longer, right? So you have two kind of groups that I, I've, I've seen. You have multiple groups, but two interesting groups. You have one, people who are themselves senior citizens trying to care for another senior citizen. You also have groups of senior citizens, of, of caregivers who are caring for a senior citizen and raising children, right? Yes. And I've seen the bookend of this where you have individuals who are caregiving for an elderly um, parent who has dementia or Alzheimer's or some series of chronic conditions that make it very challenging to care for them, but have children who also have chronic conditions that make it difficult to care for them. And those people are, the technical term is screwed, right? Because they are getting it literally on both ends and there aren't any capabilities out there to really support both of those. And a lot of it is actually shunned. And one of the things that I've seen from caregiver groups that I've been involved with in the past is that one of the things that would actually help a lot, and this is something, this is government, right? This is not companies. One of the things that would help a lot is that they could officially get registered as a caregiver and be able to receive money from the government through Medicare or through Medicaid or through any of the other organizations that are out there from a government perspective to pr provide that care. Because what a lot of people don't understand is a lot of them have to quit their jobs, right? If you're in yes. that situation where you have a high, very much high need on both ends of that spectrum or high need on just one of the ends, doesn't matter. You can't functionally work and do that. And so a lot of people are having to choose between these two where to me, fairly obvious solution would be to enable those people to enter as home health workers themselves, make that certification easier for them, not necessarily with the rigor of an official home caregiver, but something that they can do so that they can, I don't know, eat and afford to be able to care and provide the level of care needed for those people. But that is, again, something you got to push from a government perspective, right? That is something that you're never going to get from the purely from the corporate side. Right, right, right. right. It's got to be that pro private public, and it's got to be that co-evolution between those two processes. Yeah, and there is glimmers of hope. I mean, actually, with the new administration, we have more funding for caregiving than ever has happened in the yes, past. Which is great. So, I mean, but it's still a very tricky problem. I want to hone in on some of the numbers that you were giving there to dimensionalize this a little bit and talk about why this is a tricky design problem, too. Um, yes, these people who are burning, being burned at both ends with kids who need help and older adults who need help, absolutely. So it's not just the older generation who's trying to caregive and being um, uh, struggling with their own acute and chronic conditions and making them worse. But the people in the middle who are getting increasingly depressed and burned out and whatnot and not having job supports for that specifically. Again, we'll talk about that from a design perspective, but 25% of that caregiving population are millennials. Yep. And one of the increasingly frequent reasons that kids are dropping out of high school is caregiving now. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So the, the, the age range is 8 to 18 is increasing, 8 yep. to 18. And so that that's just something to get your head around. Now, caregiving itself, it's it's tricky because when, when we talk about this, it's not just going to be something that's going to last for the next month or so or a week. The median range is five to eight years. 
especially with older adults. If yep. you're caring for someone with mental health issues, it could be eight to 12. That's a whole other other range of needs and, and demand for planning with employers, with healthcare systems, with insurers, with other groups that really isn't being actively thought about or designed for at this point. I'm going to segue us a little bit. This has been a fantastic conversation, but for time's sake, I am going sure, to sure. segue a little bit into the last activity. And this is a segment that we like to call Dead or Alive. So the first one, I think ties very well into it, right? Especially what we were just talking about. I think it's hyper relevant. So the first thing, Dead or Alive, personas. At this point, mostly dead, with the caveat that they can still live if if any if they're if if a group of folks doing ethnography and used real data actually created one that was useful. And but yet, of course, we talked about ethnography being dead too. So there's that. <laughs> well, and and I think that this situation is exactly why, right? Now, yeah. Personas. First of all, I think they're they're misused, right? Yes. I don't think that anyone understands what Cooper did was really relevant at the time when you're designing software for a group that you are not able to access, that is not readily available, that you use, particularly if you're doing enterprise software, things that aren't necessarily right. consumer-facing software products. But now everybody wants to use a persona for everything. And there's a couple of things that are wrong with that. One is that for broad market type of things, we saw this a lot in, in e-commerce, you can't, right? There's there's right. too many people to shop in too many different contexts, right? You'd have too many to be able to maintain and you, you would drive yourself insane. But in the context of this healthcare situation, what we were just talking about, particularly with the different pathways that people make to it, you can't make enough of them, right? First of all, you're, I agree, you're probably not doing the research necessary to really flesh those out. There's a fluidity in them that changes. Um, and personas, again, were probably a lot more reliable, but to use the Matthew Bishop quote, you know, the pace of change is you know, faster than it's ever been, and it's never going to be this slow again. Right. That's the same for people, right? Yeah. So your persona is almost stale the moment that you've done it if you're doing proper levels of research. And you can't really do it in a way that encompasses some of the complexity of broader services, right? Because even if you're just looking at caregivers and the people that they're caring for, right, you could go crazy with personas, and then you're not even into healthcare providers, insurance, insurers, right. you know, health services that are out there, all the other actors in that broader ecosystem, you're go, you'll go nuts, right? There's no way you can meaningfully do it. And I just don't necessarily think it's as relevant as it was 20 years ago when it was actually. Right. No, I, I agree. I mean, the, some of the things I've seen take a persona's place are things like jobs to do or jobs to be done. Yep. Where, needs, where we needs based models, right? Needs based model, precisely so. And to show how those needs might um, be driven through situation, ability, or even emotion in different contexts, so that you can have a spectrum, but still have an, enough types within that spectrum to um, have, have some uh, stepping stones to be able to work with for making decisions. So yeah, I, I think that's a that's a healthier spot spot to be in. So this next one ties very clearly into it. And again, I think we've already kind of killed it based on the previous conversation. Uh journey mapping. <laughs> Dead or alive. 
the idea of seeing what happens over time alive, uh, a journey map that solves all things as a silver bullet, dead as all get out. <laughs> yeah, that, that's and that's kind of the thought. I, I love that that journey maps you're creating when when things were more linear, right? Mm-hmm. I think that in almost any environment now, right, it is multi multifaceted, right? I, I, and again, you know, this is the Purian in me. We went to service blueprints, capture more complexity show a broader set of ecosystem, they are wanting in and of themselves as well, right? Yep. Because there is no linear journey anymore, right? It right. is so many channels that people engage with any type of service. There's so many much complexity under underlying it. It becomes just like a glib oversimplification. And when I see a lot of people do journey maps, I'm just like, wow, cool. You have managed to take something very complex and distill it to something uh, so anodyne that it doesn't really represent reality at all and then you're solutioning against it right like we're solutioning against this really simple thing that doesn't really actually capture the complexity of the reality so right marketers still love them though yeah it's true um when you have a layer of behavioral or situational staging at this moment in this in this situation when when they're just putting the toe in the water and finding something out or when they have to jump in the jump in the deep end and someone had a stroke suddenly that that add does add some context to be able to say these are the feedback loops we need those are the other things so um those are they're situational areas that we need to close loop at from a workflow standpoint and a data standpoint and those often still need to be modeled whether we can do a perfect journey map i think the, i think the biggest mistake we made with journey maps is the same mistake that was made with uh, and I'm saying the collective we that was made with personas is um, yeah we we treat them as as things and yes. they're really activities they're they're a thing to have a conversation with and um, for all the the knocks we we've given towards Cooper and others about the personas the one thing that someone told a story about is that the personas the journey maps the other things they 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 can't be looked at as a source of truth they're like postcards from a vacation that you took that's a great way of looking at it and so that that's that's i think what's often missing in the the missing link in all these tools is is the dynamic nature of time and situation and the data that can, that can fold into that but eh, preaching choir <laughs> all right last one um and this one pretty simple design prototyping so this is more specifically digitally related, but design yeah. well, dead or alive. Depends how you frame it. I mean, prototyping absolutely alive. Design prototyping for specific digital things. Certainly, aspects of that can be dead. I'm I'm actually the belief you can prototype anything, and di- digital is one thing. I can prototype an environment. I can prototype a service. I can prototype a digital thing. So. When when we say design prototyping, to me, the, the, I ask, what do you mean by that? To be able to give any kind of a meaningful answer. No, I think it's it's the notion. Of, well, I think that first of all, what you said was dead on. You know, but I think that a lot of this has been pushed. I think about what we were just talking about, right? The fact that people want to prototype and user test some digital intervention, right? So say I was building a telemedicine sort of platform. If I wanted to build a design prototype, a nice clickable prototype and actual Figma sketch and vision, whatever you want to use in order to build that out and get it in front of people and then come back and say like, Hey, people click through it and used it. Fucking useless. Right. doesn't really tell you anything. Right. Because that 
space is so broad that you're really not going to capture a real use um, or really understand how people are integrating it. You know, I'm a big fan of, especially for broader service experiences, pilots run something that is able to account for the broader complexity of the life experience of the person who's looking to use it. And you may have a clickable prototype. It's part of that, but it's got to be bigger than just the prototype, right? So yeah, I think about... It, it, it has to fit a, a larger model of, of design that's happening along with that one touch point. Yeah. Um, what, what's the call center doing? What's the p- person at the regist- front desk doing? What's the person at home doing? What's the actual patient doing? Um, it needs it needs to work uh, across this chain of events in a, in a meaningful way, especially for healthcare. And I do think that's a challenge in design prototyping, right? Because if you're only focusing on one granular touch point within a broader ecosystem that represents the experience, you're really missing out on the full story, right? And you're unable to determine with any degree of certainty or confidence that the solution that you're building, again, judged by a single touch point within that broader experience is going to be successful. No, I think that that's well-framed. And, and it, it also applies to the situational needs that can't easily be done um, in, in a single-use prototype either. So I might not be getting something for myself. I might be doing it on behalf of someone else. I might be working with someone else's budget. I, I might have someone who's a new diabetic patient and is has special needs that I don't normally shop for, but they don't they don't see that happen every day, every time. And so that drives my behavior. And then that puts a whole different lens on what I'm trying to do to get value out of a, a buy online pickup and store thing that can't necessarily easily fit square peg into round hole scenario here. Well, I think that's an absolutely perfect way to put a pin in this discussion. Pete Wendell, co-founder of the Difference Collaborative, thank you for your time. Thanks. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Design is Dead podcast. If you're interested in participating in this podcast, please drop us an email at designisdeadpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please join us for the next episode where our topic will either be ethics or video games or ethics and video games or design or possibly a combination of all of those topics. See you then.